Welcome to Thrive Community Podcast. We are a church community that is passionate about helping you thrive in your life with Jesus. If you're after more information about Thrive Community, hop onto our website at www.thrivecommunity.au. We hope you feel encouraged and inspired by this message. We're here in Melbourne. We had a really great prayer time on on Tuesday night, um, and I just feel like God's doing something fresh in that space. Even a pre-service prayer, kind of a few of us that were were praying this morning, and just then as well, God's stirring something up amongst us, and, and really excited about that. But then I was in the in the Hunter Valley for for a conference for work, and um, you know, being away, staying at a hotel, you get the the buffet breakfast, and I don't know, I'm one of those guys who loves the buffet breakfast. And I've kind of got my routine down now where you, you start with the kind of muesli or cereal or bircher muesli with the, with the fruit and bits and pieces on top. Then you've got to go to course number two where it's all the hot food. And so they actually had a really nice salmon benedict up there. So I had some salmon benedict and hash browns and everything else. And then I normally kind of have another sort of finishing up course of breakfast where you go with the, the muffins or the danishes and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I don't know, there's, there's something about when it's kind of provided for you or buffet style or all-inclusive where you end up kind of just helping yourself to everything that's there. Um, it reminded me of one time when um, we were growing up, we went on a holiday to a, to a resort that was all-inclusive. And I think I had at least six or seven coconut milkshakes every single day that we were there. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this idea of just being able to, to have what you want whenever you want, and it's all being provided, it's all being paid for up front. And I think this, this whole idea of a, of a resort being all-inclusive, right, where you, you pay a higher price up front, but then you can enjoy anything and everything during your whole stay. There's no more to pay. And as I was thinking about that and reflecting on that, I wonder whether you've ever thought about that in the context of the salvation that Jesus has made available for us that actually the work of Jesus is all-inclusive. He finished his work on the cross. He paid the ultimate price up front. He paid for our all-inclusive salvation with his, with his own blood. And we're now able to enjoy wholeness and freedom and righteousness for the rest of our days. Yes, we need to contribute our faith, but then we have access to all that he's made available for us. He finished the work on the cross when his blood was spilt. There is this all-inclusive salvation available for us. And I love what it says in Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. And this is the Amplified Classic translation. It says, but he holds his priesthood unchangeably because he lives on forever. Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity, those who come to God through him since he is always living to make petition to God and intercede with him and intervene for them. I love that, that our, our salvation is described here as the uttermost, completely, perfectly, finally, and for all time and eternity. It's, it's an all-inclusive salvation. We've been saved to the uttermost. And I wonder whether we think about that very often. Have we thought about salvation as being something that's, that's all-inclusive? Do we live our life according to that truth and, and that revelation? 
Or do we still feel like perhaps there's parts of our lives or parts of what Christ has done where we feel like we need to pay something extra to actually receive what he's made available? Maybe we feel like through our own performance or through our own striving, we need to pay a little bit more to get access to the lunch or the dinner or whatever it is in the context of the salvation that's been made available for us. You know, I was reflecting and probably most Christians, if you ask them, they would certainly be on board in saying, yes, I believe that forgiveness of sin was paid for by the blood of Christ, that that was paid for at the cross. But what he's made available for us is so much more than just forgiveness of sin. You know, do we believe that the blood of Christ has also paid the price for our redemption and being redeemed from the curse of sin and death? Do we believe that the blood of Christ has also paid the price for our justification as I was praying before? Do we really believe that God sees us just as if we'd never sinned or just as if we'd always done everything right? Do we believe that it paid the price for our atonement, that we're at one with God, our righteousness, that we're in right standing with him, but not just those spiritual truths, but he also paid the price for our emotional wholeness, for a sound mind, for physical healing, that he paid the price, our all-inclusive salvation. And perhaps another way to put it, you know, rather than calling it all-inclusive salvation, is that he's paid the price to save our whole selves, spirit, soul, and body. He's paid the price, his blood has saved us, spirit, soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it talks about, you know, the threefold nature of our person. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. That is, separate you from profane and vulgar things, make you pure and whole and undamaged, consecrated to him, set apart for his purpose. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept complete and be found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just in the same way that God is three in one, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we also are three in one, spirit, soul and body. And in order to walk in the wholeness and the freedom and the fullness of what Christ has done for us, we need to be people who grow in our revelation of what Jesus has done for our spirit, for our soul, and for our body. And not only grow in the revelation of what Christ has done for us, but learn how to take care of the threefold nature of who we are. Because if we overemphasize one to the detriment of the other, we will never actually experience the fullness and the wholeness that Christ has made available for us. You know, I know we all have, have different journeys and different experiences, but I wonder if you can think about a time perhaps where you've, I don't know, maybe even compromised your emotional health for the sake of church and spiritual things. Or perhaps you've kind of prioritized your physical health to the detriment of whether it's emotional or, or spiritual But the reality is we're three in one and we need to be people who actually care for spirit, soul and body. Because all three, I think, are are more connected than we realize sometimes, right? Um, I know, you know, Sarah said to me a few times, if I'm coming across as stressed or emotionally disengaged or whatever, she's like, Matt, I think you need to go for a run, right? And there's this kind of connection between the physical activity and then finding kind of a, a release and, and a greater place of health in my emotional kind of soul side. 
And I know we all have different ways that we, whether it's physical activity, whether it's riding bikes or whatever it is that helps us clear our minds and find a, a better place in our soul. But all three are connected, spirit, soul, and body. And through what Jesus did on the cross, he's made a, a way for us to find freedom and wholeness in spirit, soul, and body. That's not just limited to forgiveness and sin, but it actually flows through to emotional and health in our souls and in our physical bodies. And how has God done that? God's provided a way for us to find freedom and wholeness, spirit, soul, and body through the precious blood of Jesus. It's through the blood of Jesus that we find that freedom and that wholeness. I love this verse in Leviticus 17, 11. And it's talking about really the power of blood, even in the context of the Old Testament. And it says, I'm reading from the new, the NIV. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You see, even in the Old Testament law, the way that they atoned for sin and the way they found atonement for their lives, different translations actually say atonement for one's soul, which is interesting. That it was through blood that they found atonement and were made at one again with God and found that place of wholeness with him. See, there's, there's life in the blood, as it says there. The life of a creature is in the blood. And so in shedding blood, there's this exchange of death for life. And that's exactly what happened when Christ died for us, that he shed his blood so that we might have his life, spirit, soul, and body. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks, you know, I've been spending a bit of time reading through the Gospels, and I've, I've noticed that there's kind of three key blood moments in his journey, particularly in the kind of the last Passion Week leading into Easter. And so we're going to look at those three different moments, one today, next week, and the week after, and see if we can grow together in all that Jesus has done for us, all that the blood of Jesus has made available for us. The, the first moment that we're going to look at today is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's feeling burdened by the weight of what he's about to endure. And it says in Luke that he sweats drops of blood. And then obviously there's also the, the journey of Jesus where he's whipped and beaten and pierced and blood is spilt as he's going to the cross. And lastly, after Jesus' resurrection, he has 40 days where he appears to his disciples. And then he ascends into heaven and puts or sprinkles his blood on the mercy seat of heaven. Three really significant moments to do with the blood of Jesus. And I feel like each of those represent spirit, soul, and body. There's Jesus in the garden where he's suffering emotionally in his soul and he sweats those drops of blood. He's pierced physically and sheds blood on the cross. And then the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat of heaven seals our spiritual redemption and our spiritual salvation. And so we're going to unpack those over the next few weeks. And it's interesting that Jesus really had to wrestle with his assignment in each of those different spaces. Right? He had to wrestle with what he was called to do in his soul. He had to wrestle with it and deal with it physically in his body. And he also had to wrestle with it spiritually in the three days that he was paying the price for our sin. And so as I said, today we're going to look at the first one, which is kind of chronological order of the journey that Jesus went through, which was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And like I said, I feel like this gives us an insight into the price that Jesus paid 
for the wholeness of our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. And I find it really, really interesting, actually, that it seems like Jesus had to endure the agony of the suffering of his soul before he endured the physical suffering, before he endured the spiritual suffering. That in itself is kind of intriguing to me. I wonder whether there's something about perhaps the soul almost being a gateway to our body and our spirits in some ways. I mean, I've certainly noticed that if, if you're in my own life and others, if, if our soul is healthy, it can make such a difference to our physical well-being, but also our spiritual well-being. And on the flip side, if we've got all sorts of stuff going on in our mind, our will and our emotions, it can have a big impact on our physical body. Lots of people say, I don't know what the statistics are. I don't know whether you know, Bill, from your medical background, what's the percentage, the number of sicknesses and stuff that actually are a result of stress and kind of emotional issues, that there's a large number of things that really come back to our soul health. And the reality is also, you know, if we've got stuff going on in our souls, it can impact our spiritual life as well. And so jumping into that passage um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I'm going to read, first of all, from, from Mark. We'll look at the records in Luke and Matthew later on as well. But Mark 14, 32 to 35, I'm reading from the Amplified. And so, you know, Jesus and his disciples have just shared their final Passover meal, the Last Supper. They've had communion. And then it says, Then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit down here until I have prayed. And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, extremely anguished at the prospect of what was to come. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved and overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is deeply grieved and overwhelmed with sorrow. Remain here and keep watch. And after going a little farther, he fell to the ground, distressed by the weight of his spiritual burden, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. It's pretty heavy and emotive language. Right? That my soul is deeply grieved and overwhelmed with sorrow. The message translation actually says, Jesus sank into a pit of suffocating darkness. Mm. Jesus sank into a pit of suffocating darkness. Darkness, and it's, and it's in this context, in this kind of weight of grief and sorrow that Luke 22 says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's Luke 22, 44. Being in anguish, there was an anguish, there was a grief, there was a sorrow that was almost overwhelming. And I'm certainly not a medical expert, but I did do a little bit of Googling and I don't know whether we should be relying on Dr. Google or not, but it tells me that sweating blood is actually a recognized medical condition um, called hematidrosis. I don't know whether I'm pronouncing that right or not. <laughs> Bill's not sure. <laughs> we can ask the pharmacist. No. Um, a recognized medical condition, and it's kind of defined as capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands end up rupturing causing the sweat glands to exude blood, and it occurs under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. It's severe mental anxiety that apparently activates the sympathetic nervous system and invokes the, the stress response of fight or flight to such a degree that it causes those blood vessels to hemorrhage 
and blood comes out the sweat glands. So Jesus must have been feeling such a weight of stress and sorrow and grief and pain and anxiety at what he was about to endure that it caused those blood vessels to rupture and blood was coming out of his sweat glands. You know, and I wonder whether perhaps even just for a moment we close our eyes or just take a moment to reflect on what that would have been like or what that moment, the weight, the depth, the pain, the agony, the anguish, the suffering. Right? Yes, he, he, he suffered physically on the cross, but there's this tremendous agony and anguish and suffering in his soul in the garden. And he did that for you and me. That he was under such stress, such a burden, that his sweat became like drops of blood. The suffering must have been so intense. And you know, not, not only is that something perhaps that might strike us afresh on all that Jesus endured for us, but perhaps in our own way, it also reinforces again that we have a God who knows what it means to feel pain and feel grief and to suffer. Right, I'm, I'm not sure. Again, we've all got different journeys you know, I'm sure we've never experienced that level of grief because nobody has felt the weight of, of their sin in that same way. But perhaps we've felt like in our own way, we've had seasons where we feel like we've been suffocating in darkness, just like the message translation says there. Or, or maybe there's been other seasons where we can identify with that sense of sorrow and grief and pain and agony and anguish in our souls. And I think we can take comfort from the fact that we have a God who has been there and endured the same thing and understands our pain and our agony and our hurt. And Hebrews 4, right, where it talks about we have a high priest who understands and has been tempted in all ways and yet was without sin. The very next verse, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. That by recognizing afresh that we have a God who understands and who endured this stuff for us, may we come back to coming boldly before the throne of grace. But with that, with that in mind, that, that extreme amount of pain and suffering that Jesus was enduring in his soul in the garden, how, how does this kind of tie back to what he's done for us? How does this tie back to our all-inclusive salvation? Well, I believe a really big key to, to understanding what Christ has accomplished for us is understanding the power of grace and, and the power of the divine exchange that took place. Like we were kind of talking about before, that Jesus died so that we could have life. There's this exchange of death for life. Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There's this exchange of sin for righteousness. Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted in the beloved. There's this exchange of rejection for acceptance. And in the same way here, Jesus endured anguish, in his soul, so that we could have prosperity in ours. There's this exchange of immense anguish and agony and suffering in his soul, 
so that we might have a way to find wholeness in ours. The power of divine exchange. And just as a bit of a side note, you know, we're about to, to read a couple of verses from Isaiah 53, but I found this really helpful and I try to do it around Easter time most years is reading through Isaiah, the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53. And you read all of the struggle, all of the pain, all of the persecution and everything that Jesus endured. And if you begin going through that and identifying the opposite of each of the things that he endured, we begin to get a fuller picture of what he's made available for us. Right? Like even at the beginning of Isaiah 53, it says that there was nothing beautiful or attractive about him. But actually because of his journey and there was nothing beautiful or attractive about him, we can find ourselves in a place of beauty and attractiveness in our relationship with God. And there's this divine exchange that took place in all that he endured so that we can receive the benefit on the other side of the spectrum. So Isaiah 53, 10 to 11, as I said, if you read through, there's so much in that. But Isaiah 53, because we're focusing on what Jesus endured in his soul. Isaiah 53, 10 to 11, it said, Yet the Lord was willing to crush him, causing him to suffer. If he would give himself as a guilt offering and atonement for sin, he shall see his spiritual offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will, good pleasure of the Lord shall succeed and prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he shall see it and be satisfied. As a result of the anguish of his soul. I mean, this is amazing that this was written before Jesus was even born, right? The, just the, the kind of the detail in Isaiah 53. But it's giving us a glimpse here into the divine exchange that took place. It's effectively saying there's kind of success and prosperity on one hand, and Jesus will see that as a result of the anguish of his soul. We find prosperity of soul in our lives, or we have the ability to find prosperity of soul in our lives because of the anguish that Jesus endured in his soul. It's because of the blood of Jesus, the price that he paid, the suffering that he endured, that that our inheritance as sons and daughters includes a prosperous, healthy soul. And we're going to share communion together in a moment. And, you know, I'm believing that as as we pray and as we share communion that we would just experience a fresh impartation of all that the blood of Jesus has done for us. A fresh impartation where he brings us back into that place of being able to receive the wholeness that he's made available for us. And God absolutely is the only one who can restore and redeem and heal many of those wounds or pains in our souls. He's the God of the miraculous. He moves mountains. He does the impossible. And we're believing that as we journey over the next few weeks that he's going to do that in our hearts and our lives. We're going to see things healed. We're going to see things restored. We're going to see things reconciled. And I think as a, as a Pentecostal church as a whole, we've done a pretty good job of telling people that God is a mountain-moving God and God is a God of the miraculous. And we absolutely believe that and we absolutely want to be people who continue to go after the power and the miraculous nature of God. But in addition to seeing the blood applied in the miraculous We also want to be people who are able to to steward and walk out what God has done for us. We need to be able to carry the truth of what Christ has done for us and walk it out with maturity and wisdom so that it's a part of our everyday lives, right? Not just a Sunday experience. So that the, the truth and the reality of the resurrection and the blood of Christ 
transforms us and impacts our everyday lives when we're at home, when we're at the shops, wherever we might be, that we are carrying the truth of what he's done for us. And I feel like the Apostle Paul shows us this truth through a number of ways in his letters to the early church, but of everyone who ever walked on the earth, right? He's the one that wrote Colossians and Ephesians and all of those amazing epistles that go into all that Christ has done for us. He had probably the greatest revelation of the blood of Jesus and what Christ has done for us of anyone who's ever walked the earth. And yet, despite that revelation, he's still praying and teaching for people to walk things out on a kind of day-by-day basis, right? It wasn't just about the miraculous first-off encounter, but teaching people and praying for people to continue to walk out, not only health in their soul, but in every area of their life. It's 3 John 1, 2 says, actually, I'm not sure that this is even the, uh, the Apostle Paul that wrote it now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, it says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and, being, and be in health, just as your soul prospers. And there's this kind of prayer that we would be people who are able to walk a life that has a prosperous soul. And I mean, this in itself, this verse shows the connection effectively between the prosperity of our soul and the prosperity of everything else in our life. You know, and when, you, when you dig into the, the, the Greek words, some commentators will say, basically, it's, beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in good health um, in the same way that your soul is prospering. So there's this sense that if our soul is struggling, then... It impacts every other area of our life. But if our soul is doing well, then we might prosper in all things and be in good health. That, that link between the spirit, soul, and body. So look, I don't have too much more to, to share this morning. And so as we come to our kind of a time of, of sharing communion, what I do want to do is just very briefly look quickly at some of the practical things that Jesus did in response to the, the agony and the anguish that he was experiencing. And maybe there's some keys that we can learn. And look, I'm putting myself in this basket. I'm being honest. Like I, I don't feel like I kind of do the navigating soul issues as well as I should. I struggle with that as well. Um, and so I'm not here kind of saying that I've got this down. And if you ask Sarah, I'm sure she'll tell you that I certainly don't. <laughs> and being the discerner that she is, she could probably tell you why and what the root is and what I need to deal with. <laughs> but I do think there's some keys in the way Jesus responded and navigated his own moment or his dark night of the soul that might be helpful for us. And so I'm just going to very quickly read Matthew 26 from verse 36 and then very quickly touch on a couple of things that he did and then we'll share communion, communion together. So Matthew 26, verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The first thing I want to draw out there is that um, he went away with Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. There was just a couple of close friends that he went away with. And it says, Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He shared the wrestle and the pain of what was going on with some trusted close friends. He didn't share it with all of the disciples. He didn't share it with everyone. But there was Peter, James, and John here that he chose to share the grief and the pain. 
No, no, yeah, that's right. He wasn't posting his deep soul wounds on social media. (laughs) But perhaps that's something for us. And, you know, in the context here, he says, you know, to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Or the translations effectively say, pray with me. And he had a conversation with a couple of close friends and said, I'm struggling here and feeling the weight of what's going to happen. Can you please pray and cover me in prayer? And I think that in itself is a huge first step. Often some of the deep soul stuff we feel ashamed to talk about, we struggle to talk about, and actually having one or two people that we can share that with and ask for. Prayer support is really, really important. And even Jesus did it. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then Jesus goes a little farther and he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And obviously telling others and asking others to pray for us is really, really important. But we also need to pray ourselves in the same way that Jesus went away and prayed himself to the father. And I love the message translation of that same passage. It says, going a little ahead, Jesus fell on his face saying, my father, if there is any way, get me out of this. But please, not what I want. You, what do you want? And I find that really, really challenging because I think, well, for me as as a thinker, if there's stuff going on, I try and think it through. You try and work out what happened, who was wrong, why they were wrong, or what I should change, what I should do differently, what the solution looks like. Whereas Jesus here seems to leave that behind and just come to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want? What do you want in this? Which, as I said, for me is is quite challenging. But being able to come before the Lord in prayer, if we're wrestling with something in our souls and be vulnerable, be real that we're struggling, Jesus is, right? If there's any way, get me out of this. I'm finding this hard. But being humble and surrendered to what God wants to do in and through that is a big part of being able to navigate the issues in our soul. And then Jesus returns to his disciples and he finds them sleeping. <laughs> Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Jesus goes away a second time and prays, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And then he ends up right, finding the disciples asleep again and goes back and prays a third time. And there's this, you know, I feel like a key for us in, in some ways, or speaking just for me personally, is that that's not just praying once, but actually praying again and again. And so often dealing with stuff in our souls, the reality is as much as we would like it to be over and done in one very quick two-minute prayer, often requires us to come back to the Lord again and again to be able to walk out what it is that he's wanting to do. Again, the, the, that second prayer that Jesus prays, In the message translation, it says he left them a second time and again he prayed, my father, if there's no other way than this, drinking this cup to the dregs, I'm ready. Do it your way. And I love that, that kind of transition from the first prayer, which is, Lord, what do you want? And then the next one is, I'm ready, do it your way. And you almost see that by spending time in prayer, Jesus is being transformed into aligning himself with God's perspective and God's way of doing things. And I wonder whether that's the same for us. You pray once, And perhaps we take one step, but the more we pray, we continue to kind of align ourselves with God's perspective and what he has, what he has for us. But not only does prayer help kind of shift us towards God's will and God's way, but it also releases the peace of God, which Philippians 4, 6, 7 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So there's something about spending time in prayer when we're struggling in our mind, in our souls, that releases the peace of God to guard that space, which I think is really important as well. And lastly, as we wrap this up, it says that you know, after the third time of praying, Jesus returns to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There actually comes a time where we need to step up and do what it is that we feel like God is asking us to do, to deal with whatever it is that might be going on, right? Just sitting at home and praying a prayer isn't always enough. There might be a conversation that we need to have with someone. There might be some kind of action that needs to be taken to find the freedom and to find the wholeness that God has for us. Jesus stepped into what he knew he had to do. He'd kind of had that wrestle in prayer and it set in his heart or set his face like flint, as it says, and committed to walking the path to the cross and paying the ultimate price. And so hopefully some of those little practical things are helpful. We're going to spend some time just in worship again as we share communion. And I want us to kind of engage on on two fronts. Perhaps the first one is just allowing the blood of Jesus and the power of the blood of Jesus to, to touch our hearts again. Because of the agony and the anguish that he endured, we get to participate in that beautiful divine exchange where the anguish that he endured made a way for us to experience wholeness in our souls. And so as we share in communion, may we just believe that the blood of Christ would touch our hearts afresh this morning. But also those practical things, perhaps there's something in there that you feel like you need to do, whether it's telling someone about something that's going on and asking for prayer. Maybe it's the way you pray to God and just being willing to let go of what you think needs to happen and ask what he wants to do. Maybe it's just going back to prayer again and again, or there's a step that needs to be taken.